the culture wars at their base are debates about the idea of America, what it means to be an American. That's Andrew Hartman, professor of history at Illinois State University, founding president of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History, and author of A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars. Today we hear from Andrew about the rival ideas and ideologies behind the culture wars, and whether the battles over culture that were fought in the 80s and 90s are also being fought today. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Today, it seems like pretty much everybody in America is seeing, feeling, and participating in a kind of cultural brawl. The rise of Trump, for instance, elicits profoundly, even disturbingly different responses on the right and on the left, as well as in the center, such as it is. But of course, it's not just Trump. The candidacy of Clinton, as well as the rise of Sanders and popular movements such as Black Lives Matter, have placed questions of gender, race, economics, and politics center stage all at the same time. The clash and collision of these interests raises a question for historians and citizens alike. How do the cultural debates of today resemble those of the recent past, and what can their resemblance teach us? The intellectual historian Andrew Hartman helps us answer that question. In our conversation, we discuss the major cultural shifts of the 60s, the consequent debates of the 80s, and the related political collisions today. We also talk about what the candidacies of Trump and Clinton might mean for the near future of American culture and politics, and whether the rise of Sanders points to a split in the Democratic Party that will have consequences well beyond this election season. All that and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Andrew Hartman, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Joe, very much for having me. Your book, A War for the Soul of America, examines the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. Your title comes from a speech that the paleoconservative Patrick Buchanan gave at the 92 Republican National Convention. Why did Buchanan consider himself and other conservatives to be sort of waging a war for the soul of the country? Who did they think that they were fighting against and what was the fight about? Buchanan, as a paleoconservative, and I would say just more generally, as someone who considered himself a traditionalist conservative. They looked at the at American culture and American politics of the 1980s and 1990s, Buchanan giving this speech in 92, and they saw a much more secular, much more liberal culture and all of the manifestations that came along with that. You know, you can list off a hundred different examples of such manifestations, the um, legalization and widespread availability of pornography, the legalization of abortion. This also swerved into things like affirmative action, which for them threatened what they considered bedrock American principles of meritocracy, a whole host of things that sort of came together in the 1960s going forward they genuinely recognized as a threat to the America that they once knew. And from the vantage point of a historian, I tend to agree with them that American culture had changed quite dramatically Mm. from the 1960s going forward. And insofar as the old America was was the great America, you might say, for them, they had reason to be angry and reason to fight back under those terms. So I heard you once uh, say in a debate, I think it was, that the 1960s were a period of transformation and the culture wars of the 80s and 90s were a sort of demonstration of that transformation. So could you explain that idea? How did the culture wars in some sense stem from the 60s and come from the sort of debates that were going on initially in, say, 68? What happened in the 1960s, I argue, is there was indeed a massive transformation of American culture. It became more multicultural, more cosmopolitan, more secular, in many ways more liberal, and you might even say more relativistic. Now, all of this you could lump under the umbrella of the modern world or modernity, and so a lot of the sort of threads that came to the surface in the 1960s had long been swirling underneath the surface for at least maybe 100 years, but particularly since, say, the 1920s, 
massive world events in the middle of the 20th century, such as the Great Depression and World War II and then the early Cold War, sort of put a lid on this burning cauldron of modernity. But for a host of reasons, it all came off. The lid came off in the 1960s. And the transformations were rapid. And for many people, they were exciting, exhilarating. But for others, they were quite threatening. Why would these transformations have been exciting for some people and 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 intimidating for others? I recall, I think you you call the transformations as as sort of taking apart in some people's view the the sort of normative America. Could you talk about that a bit? So normative America, which is a a term I use to describe 1950s America, was a time when norms were prescribed, and these norms were they were strongly held together by a culture that by a white middle class culture that was the dominant culture that valued such things as meritocracy that valued um, such things as the heterosexual um, nuclear family in fact the 1950s is probably the most put together um, nuclear family in american history before the 1950s and after the 1950s there was less habitation in nuclear families and so this is like the high point of the nuclear family it's a it's a it's a short window but that is the america that many especially traditional americans like buchanan remembered all of this is coming apart in the 1960s for a whole host of reasons some of these reasons have to do with the movements that people form to fight against this normative america the feminist movement the gay liberation movement the black power and ethnic power movements uh, you, even the countercultural movement and the anti-war movement in which it was wrapped up in, all of this represented a challenge to normative America. Those who were doing the challenging never felt necessarily at home in normative America. Mm-hmm. If you were black, if you were gay, or if you were a woman who didn't want to be a stay-at-home mother, in s- certain respects, that normative America was not your America. It was somebody else's America. And so for many such people... Um, the, the movements of the 1960s that, that transformed the nation and the national culture, they were, they were efforts in some way to make America more resemble the America of their dreams. That reminds me of a, a line from early in your book. You write that the history of America is largely a history of debates about the idea of America. Do you take then the culture wars as being a debate about the idea of America? In this case, normative America would represent the sort of dominant view of what America should be for many of the people who are politically enfranchised in America. Were debates about religion, gender, race, and and higher education in the 80s really debates about the idea of America generally? Yes. I think that the culture wars at their base are debates about the idea of America, what it means to be an American, American identity. Sometimes that what it means to be human or hu- what is human nature gets wrapped up in this. But at, at their base, that's what these debates are. Now, many historians would no doubt argue that such debates have always happened. In fact, perhaps the only thing that makes us American is the fact that we always seem to be having debates about what it means to be an American. And I, I think that's true, but I think that there are sort of ebbs and flows in the, in the intensity of this debate. And I think the era that followed the 1960s because of this transformation that I talk about is an extremely intense period of the debate about the idea of America. And so when I talk about the culture wars historically, I'm really sort of limiting it to this period after the 1960s, but particularly the 80s and 90s. Mm. The debates about America continue today. I think you'd have to live under a rock not to see that. And debates about the idea of America go back, way back. I mean, this was one of de Tocqueville's main arguments. But they were extremely intense in particular in the 80s and 90s. It's, it seems like one, so as you say, debates about America have, have always been happening since since the founding it seems like a shift in the 60s, and you focus uh, on this topic as well in one of your chapters, that it's a chapter you call The Battle for the American Mind, that a lot of these debates are now happening and have been happening since around 68 on college campuses. In your chapter about uh, higher education, you write that the culture wars often hinged on an epistemological question about national identity. How should Americans think? 
you write about the changes in American universities in the 80s and 90s, the rise of French theory with a capital T, but you also talk about the rise of identity politics and the charge, usually from the right, that universities had embraced a form of sort of illiberalism that silenced conservative voices. Uh, could you take us through that? Because it seems like some of those debates are, are basically happening once again today on college campuses and around college campuses in the many publications such as The Atlantic that seem always to, to have articles about either the death of the humanities or, you know, debates between students and professors. I think it's no surprise that the university became perhaps one of the central uh, locations for the culture wars in the 80s and 90s. The university had become, more than ever before, the engine of American opportunity and also the place where the promise of American life was fought out and debated. And especially in the humanities, I mean, the very purpose of the humanities anywhere, but particularly in the United States, was to contemplate human nature. And in an American context, that was often to contemplate the American project, the American experience, American identity. The movements of the 1960s totally transformed the way that question was asked and answered in humanities departments across the country. And there came to be less of a consensus about America's role in the world as a beacon of light and much more critical analysis of America through the lens of race and through the lens of gender in particular. What you see is that a, a certain sort of relativistic framework for understanding things like truth and human nature became the dominant framework. And a lot of this was sort of, at least in, it was spoken in the language of French theory. Although I would argue that it goes way back to pragmatism in an American context, or perhaps even to transcendentalism. But it was often, you know, it was scholars citing people like Foucault and Derrida to make their case. But the way in which French theory was put to use in the United States was vastly different than the way it was put to use in other places, including especially in France. In the United States, it was put to use for identity politics and this sort of relativistic framework for understanding things like the truth was used to demolish this normative American conception of greatness that, or, or, or a normative American conception of, quote unquote, the canon that had been sort of the way the humanities had been taught for much of the 20th century up until then. And so, you know, all sides in this debate, because they recognize the importance of the university as the place where the promise of, of American life was established and debated, there were people who were, they were very invested in this debate and conservatives in particular. And I get, not to get too ahead of ourselves here, but I am interested in the relationship between the debates that were going on in the 80s and from the 60s to the 80s that, that you're talking about. Do, do you see these same things uh, in college campuses today? I'm thinking immediately of, of obviously what happened at the University of Missouri. Yes. But as well, just at Yale, there was that the Christakis sort of email scandal that happened. And then the, uh, a great deal of moaning and sort of gnashing of teeth kind of on, on both sides in, in, the, uh, in, in, in the world of, of magazine writing. A lot of people emphasized these events as, as showing how colleges have become sort of against free speech or they don't hold up the ideals of the First Amendment above other ideals. And, and a debate still ensues. So could you talk a bit about that? There are definitely similarities, um, and so I don't want to diminish the similarities. The basic question that got people so animated in the 80s about what does it mean to be an American and how does that play out in terms of race, gender, et cetera, those questions are still being debated. They're, they're at the heart of the current debates, but the landscape seems to be a lot different in this sense, especially in the – so in the 1980s, the humanities – by people on all sides of the sort of spectrum was considered something crucial to a democracy, crucial to American democracy. So you had maybe the lead conservative culture warrior in these debates, William Bennett, who was the chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities in the first Reagan administration, and then he was the secretary of education in the second. He was leading the charge in these debates. He believed that every American should have 
access to the humanities, should read all of the classic texts in the humanities. He believed that the humanities were crucial to American democracy as he saw it. Now, he had a very different view of the humanities than did most professors in the humanities disciplines at that time, and that's where the debate came into play. He believed in a sort of traditionalist Western civilization curriculum, a Western canon, great books style, but he still believed in the humanities. Now there seems to be a much different sort of environment on American colleges. Most politicians are slashing funds to public education like never before, and oftentimes specifically targeting the humanities. Scott Walker in Wisconsin targeted the Wisconsin idea, which was a basic humanities idea that had been written into the University of Wisconsin, that the purpose is to search for the for the meaning of truth. Um, he wanted to do away with that. You have other politicians in places like Florida who are trying to make it such that to major in the humanities at one of their public institutions costs more in tuition and fees than to major in something more vocationally oriented. And so they consider the humanities a luxury, unnecessary to how we conceptualize democracy and capitalism in American society now. So to me, and so you add to that the sort of very much related skyrocketing student debt, and there just seems to be much more desperation mm -hmm. on college campuses today. And because administrators at college campuses, especially public ones, are less reliant on state money and much more reliant than ever on student tuition, they treat their students as consumers. Mm -hmm. And that plays out in a number of different ways. The recreation centers on college campuses have become like Club Med as one example. But students have learned that message and take it seriously. And so when their voices are not represented in some fashion, they're going to fight back as consumers, as citizens and as consumers. Debates about, for example, students protesting speakers on campus. Well, it's similar to what happened in the 60s, but it has a very different context. The way you're presenting a lot of these debates is that these these debates have actually affected the way uh, we think of ourselves as Americans. You, you take issue then in, in your book and elsewhere with Thomas Frank's famous reading of the culture wars and in what's the matter with Kansas, in which he basically suggests that that the issues at the center of the culture wars weren't uh, real or really compelling. I think you've said before that he takes them as superficial or mere sideshows. So why do you think he argued that and, and what's wrong with that position in your view? Well, his argument to me seems a classic sort of New Deal liberal argument during the 80s and 90s. And that is that why are we spending so much time on these issues that in the grand scheme of things don't seem to matter as much as the fact that the Republican Party is chipping away at the welfare state and, and reducing taxes on wealth. And although I'm predisposed to agree that the Republican Party's movement in that direction is a tragedy, I think it sort of misses the point, and that is that these other issues matter a great deal to people. Take, for example, Kansas, which is the sort of text Although America is the subtext of Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Ta Kansas is the main source. And he's looking especially at how the Republican Party manipulated the issue in Kansas of abortion in order to win elections and pass policies on issues like tax and state funding that were against working class interests. I agree with him that this, there's something to matter there. I agree with him that Republican politicians might have cynically and consciously done this, but I don't think that you could ask somebody who is pro-life and who thinks that the most important issue of the day is abortion to, I don't think there's any way that you could ask them to consider their issue unimportant. Um, if abortion is indeed about life and death, or on the other side, if it is indeed about a woman's control of her body, well, there's hardly anything more important than that. And I mean, this maybe this is an extreme example of it, but a New Deal liberal such as Thomas Frank 
and I would put, say, E.J. Dion in that as well. Um, he wrote a, or, or Todd Gitlin. Um, all of them were sort of in the same boat in the 80s and 90s, and Thomas Frank has continued on, in that they were not fans of the left-wing side of the culture wars because there was less of a focus on sort of what unites us around economic issues. Todd Gitlin famously titled a chapter in his book about the culture wars, The Left Marches on the English Department as the Right Takes the White House. Mm. This is part of the same sort of logic, but I tend to think that the ideas really matter and that it actually matters that it matters who controls the English department. It matters what ideas are the sort of dominant framework in the English department. And a lot of this has to do, I think, with, in the end, people being uncomfortable with the sort of new left ethos that grew out of the 1960s. The focus was definitely shifted away from class, away from labor, away from economics, and towards race, gender, identity. Could you clarify the difference between, well, I, I suppose one, in, in your book, you talk a lot about the new left and neoconservatism, and you frame both of these two sort of movements as being very particular movements on the left and the right. They don't, that is, stand for the entirety of, of the left or the right, but are rather sort of smaller subsections. Could you define the new left as opposed to other forces on the left and the same for neoconservatism on the right? I would say that for much of the 20th century up until the 1960s, the left, now variously called the old left or the labor left, was mostly focused on what would have been termed in the late 19th and early 20th century the labor question. Even if you were, say, in the Communist Party in the 1930s or if you were a member of the Socialist Party during the Debs era, you're interested in electoral politics, you're interested in a host of issues, but it all sort of centers around labor. And so you want a strong, militant, empowered labor movement, and you don't think a left can exist without that, and you think that the promise of American democracy is found in the labor movement. That was no longer the case in post-war America for a whole host of historical reasons. The working class had grown wealthy relative to history and relative to other places in the country. And with that wealth came a certain sort of what some might call complacency or just a, mu a much more conservative attitude towards a lot of things, including taxes. And so you had a host of intellectuals in the 1960s, someone like C. Wright Mills, who were highly critical of the labor movement and unions on the grounds that they were no longer the sort of center of radicalism. And so leftist activity found other locations, and, and I think especially the leftist activity was found in, say, the civil rights movement, and that uh, out of that mushroomed a whole host of issues related to rights, related to identity, and I think that's where you find the new left. The black power movement you can put under the new left umbrella because the issues seem to be about identity and liberation and culture, and less about class, although it's really hard to disentangle class from any of these things, but the focus was never necessarily on class the way it had been with the previous old left. Neoconservatism on the right, how would you define that movement as against other sort of conservative movements? You've mentioned traditionalist conservatism as well. That's a really interesting question, and I think historians are going to be sort of trying to understand that for a long time to come. Now, when we think of neoconservatism, it's really hard to think about it apart from those neoconservatives who were in the George W. Bush administration who seemed to wield a lot of influence over Bush's foreign policy. And thus, when we talk about neocons now, usually it's a, um, the discussion relates around foreign policy, a sort of muscular idealism as foreign policy, usually closely allied with Israel. But the origins of the neoconservative movement, as I argue in the book, are in the 1960s and have much more to do with domestic and cultural issues. And I argue that the neoconservatives arose in essence in opposition to the new left, to black power, to feminism, to gay rights. It, these are the issues that really seem to matter for the neocons in the 1960s and 70s. Many of them came from the left. Many of them were New Deal Democrats. Many of them were Jews or other sort of ethnic and religious minorities, but white, almost all white. And they sensed that the left had already worked out all the problems in American life, for the most part. 
look, if they were, if they as working class Jews could rise up the ranks of the New York intellectuals, if they could have so much influence in places like Washington and New York City, then anybody could. And so all of the sort of clamoring in the 1960s by especially minority students seemed to them to run at odds with American life and American identity. You might say, what's the difference between that and the Christian right? Well, the Christian right, or even paleoconservatism, as Patrick Buchanan and a small number of others would have called themselves, they too were greatly worried about issues like race, but they were perhaps, because many of them were from the South, much more sort of openly opposed to integration. And so the neoconservatives brought a sort of modern colorblind attitude to the issues of race. And I would argue that the neoconservatives established going forward the conservative movement's approach towards race and things like law and order and things like affirmative action because of its colorblind approach, it was a much more, if you, if you consider the neoconservative approach to race in any way racist, it's a much more coded racism, whereas the paleocons were much more open about it. And the neoconservatives also were not interested in religious issues at first, although many of them came to the conclusion that American democracy required a citizenry that was in check, this is a very sort of old school conservative approach and that they believe Christianity perhaps was the best check on the demos. This was certainly Irving Kristol's argument. He's considered the godfather of neoconservatism. So that, that's interesting that you bring up religion because uh, you, you also take a bit of issue with James Davidson Hunter's reading of the culture wars that it was essentially about religion or rather the, the clash of the 60s, 70s and 80s was basically a clash between secular progressives and religious conservatives. You've brought up religion a few times. It seems like it is part of your reading of the culture wars. So how does yours differ from from Hunter's? I think Hunter's analysis was right uh, when he wrote his book in 1991 and sort of created a dichotomy between progressives and traditionalists who happened to be religious. But I don't think it went far enough. So it was right only insofar as it went, because Hunter's analysis largely ignored historical de developments related to the 60s that did not necessarily have anything to do with religious history. The fight between the new left and the neocons, which I argue sort of created the framework for the culture wars that the Christian right later sort of joined and added the demographic bedrock to the right side of the culture wars. But the neoconservative new left debates were not about religion. There's very, it's, they're sort of devoid of religion. It was much more about the promise of American life. It was much more about issues of race and gender. The Christian right joined the right side of the culture wars in the 1970s, and they joined a landscape that the neocons had sort of laid out for them. And they changed it, of course, especially because there were millions of them. And so in many, in many ways, the issues became much more focused on religion by the 80s and 90s, but not always. And I think it depends where you look. If abortion is the issue you're studying, or in many cases, issues related to gender, then the Christian right was everywhere. If pop culture and censorship is your issue, so for example, when conservatives went after Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ, or when they went after Robert Maplethorpe's homoerotic art of, that, that was often sadomasochistic. Of course, religion is at the forefront. But when you go to, say, the university, the debates were almost always framed in the way that the neoconservatives framed them, and religion was hardly ever at issue. So from my vantage point, Hunter was right not he didn't go sort of he didn't broaden out his scope enough and he didn't historicize the culture wars enough so i'm i'm sort of complimenting him rather than directly challenging him you conclude your book by writing that the culture wars are history the logic of the culture wars has been exhausted the metaphor has run its course your, your book was published in 2015 so you wrote that you know a, a couple of years ago what did you mean then and uh, given the rise of trump do you still think that yeah, that's a good question. That's a provocative conclusion, right? I mean, of all of the reviews my book has received, I'd say 75% of them have said, yeah, this is a good history of the culture wars, but now let's talk about that crazy conclusion. 
What I meant is that the 1980s and 90s seemed like a particular era in American history in which the culture wars were the sort of central force in American political culture. And that it seemed by the time I wrote the book in 2014, published in 2015, it seemed that that had petered out and there was there were different things upon which people were focusing on. I never argue that polarization had ended. In many ways, it's deepened. I never argued that Americans had settled American identity. That is not going to ever happen. But that the particularities of the 80s and 90s seemed to be ebbing, seemed to have ebbed. And, you know, the election of 2016 has, in some ways, perhaps refuted that conclusion, making it clear I should remain a historian and not apply for any profit jobs. <laughs> but I, I, on the other hand, I don't think this has played out in exactly culture wars terms if you define the culture wars as I define them specific to the 80s and 90s. I mean, take the issue of Trump and the type of right wing that supports him. This is the issue. The Christian right is all over the map on Trump. The Christian right in general seems far less powerful right now than they did during the 80s. Seems far less capable of setting any type of national agenda. I think many evangelicals vote for Trump, but not all do. And he certainly is not in any way obedient to them or their issues, except for maybe a few nods here or there on something like abortion. That's just very different. He, in many ways, is much more a paleoconservative, an America first conservative, going back to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. You can see this in his much less coded discussions of issues like race. The neoconservatives, many of them I think hate Trump, those who are still around. Some of their sons don't hate Trump, but I, their sons are are um, not very good representatives of their father's neoconservatism. But the neo neoconservatives felt like they were modernizing conservatism and modernizing the Republican Party to account for, to, to be more cosmopolitan. And Trump has taken the Republican Party and the conservative movement back in that way, if you want to look at it in a sort of progressive form. Um, and so I don't know, it just seems different. This election seems much more about the economy and, the, and economic anxiety and maybe the sort of polarization that grew out of the culture wars is mapped on to different anxieties. So it still sometimes feels like the culture wars, but there's a, just a different sort of feel, a different sort of edge to it. Here's something that though Trump has definitely picked up from the culture wars, although I doubt he realizes it, and that is the conservative rejection of political correctness. The term political correctness does not start to be used until about 1990. And it's used first, most often by neoconservative intellectuals, but begins to be used so much that, for example, in 1991, George H.W. Bush gives a graduation speech at the University of Michigan and mentions that political correctness is now a threat to freedom. The sense that there is an elite that is politically correct, that is liberal, that is worried about offending anyone, that is anti-free speech, that sense is alive and well more than ever before, and Trump has definitely tapped into that. The ruder and more obnoxious he is, the more um, he says to offend, the more he pleases people who seem to be anti-PC. And so that element of the culture war seems alive and well. On the other side of the ticket, what I found so interesting about the Democratic primary divide between Clinton and Sanders is that the Clinton campaign very much seems a product of the culture wars in the sense that the thing that she touted that she had going for, aside from the obvious things like experience and connections, her record, but she touted that she was a woman and this, and that she was a woman who had weathered the storm of a masculine political world for many decades. And this had a profound effect, I think, on a lot of voters. Identity politics still played a, a huge role there. When I was reading your conclusion, it struck me that the suggestion was that, as you say, some of the right had to sort of resign themselves to the cultural changes of the 60s. They didn't necessarily agree with these changes, but the changes had taken over, as you suggest, the establishment, the political establishment. Most people had accepted them 
as simply being the social, the new social reality and the end of normative America. When I was reading that and sort of looking back on the past past few months, I was reminded of E.J. Dion's argument and and how the right went wrong, which seems to be pretty prominent on the center-left, uh, a pretty prominent reading of the rise of Trump. He suggests that for the past 40 years, Republican politicians had been making promises to their base that they couldn't keep. And this base had been increasingly silenced in the political discussion in that the rise of Trump is essentially their resurgence. Would that suggest mm-hmm. to you that perhaps a lot of these people hadn't resigned themselves at all to the cultural changes? It's just that we hadn't been hearing their voices because they didn't have any representation in politics? Well, if you agree with that analysis, I think it would suggest that. But I, I think it's really hard to make coherent sense of that at this stage. I mean, I don't know, maybe we just need more time and perspective. But the argument has long been, for example, that Reagan, who is, I guess, the figurehead of modern American conservatism, paid a lot of attention to the economic side of the conservative movement and much less attention to the cultural side. As president, of course, he engineered some of the biggest tax cuts in American history, which, which helped reconfigure the sort of spectrum of wealth in the United States. But he was unable to achieve a lot of the goals that the Christian right had set out for him, and that had defined their politics in that era, things like a school prayer amendment, um, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. But I would argue that Reagan, in fact, did more than any other president probably would have on their issues, which is why they continued to like him as a president, and that it just by that point was nearly impossible to reverse those changes because normative America, as I argue, was in fact dead. Now, so the Make America Great slogan Mm. that Trump is running on seems to suggest a sort of longing for the days of normative America type thing. And I get that. And it's the sort of sensibility out there, especially amongst a lot of older white Americans. So it's still there sort of in the ethos, but it's really hard for me to pinpoint it in terms of any specific demographic or movement in American political life in the way that we're able to when we talk about the 1980s. And, you know, what issues is Trump writing to make America great again? He has some sort of vague idea about making the economy better, and he wants to limit immigration and build a wall. But I I just don't understand what issues he's running on that people are grappling onto that would suggest they want to return to some sort of specific normative America when America was great again. It's a very sort of vague thing, and it's in the ethos maybe for 30% of Americans, which is why Trump has gotten as far as he has. And maybe it has to go back to the political correctness aspect of Trump. There is a sense that the elite, including the Republican Party elite, has been just pulling one over on people. But to get into the specifics of it, I, th- I don't know that we can do that. And it's, it seems very vague in terms of the issues. Again, it just seems wildly different from the 1980s and 90s. Could you talk a bit as well then? You brought up Clinton's rise. Could you describe your thoughts on the rise of Sanders as well and the seeming split in the Democratic Party? The split perhaps between of leftism as being primarily about identity versus leftism as being primarily about the economy? Because that, that question seemed to come up a lot when when supporters of, of Clinton and Sanders clashed. Indeed. I would say that the best evidence uh, that proves my conclusion true is the rise of Sanders and the generational split in the Democratic Party. The majority of young people, millennials as they're called, are not interested in the social issues that define the culture wars. I would argue this is because the left has already won them. They don't feel like they have to continue to fight those issues anymore. They're worried about debt. They're worried about being able to get a job that can afford them a decent living. They're worried about very basic economic things. And so Sanders, coming from a social democratic background and perspective, offered them a political vision that they got on board with and that many older Democrats have not because, you know, maybe older Democrats still feel, and maybe they're right in this, that the issues of gender, say, are, are not solved. I think that generational divide is really important in, in terms of 
going forward in terms of thinking about how important the, the sort of culture war issues will be in the Democratic Party. I would argue not very, at least in terms of who is the future of the Democratic Party. The future of the Democratic Party is my inclination is to think much more aligned with Sanders than Clinton. But Clinton is the Sander bear right now. Is, is it the rise of Sanders that's most interesting to you? What, what sort of new ideas are moving through the national conversation that have your attention right now? The rise of Sanders, definitely. Now, in part, I admit that's because I supported his candidacy and I, I, I've been following his political career for many decades. And when he announced his candidacy, I thought, oh, this will be interesting. But I thought of it more as a sort of protest within the Democratic primary vote, much like maybe perhaps Dennis Kucinich was eight, 12 years ago. The fact that he did as well as he did shocked me. And and it makes me really interested going forward in the, the politics of the Democratic Party. To me, it seems... Sanders is another manifestation of a growing social democratic, even radical awareness amongst many young people that you're also seeing manifested in different ways in things like Black Lives Matter or from a few years back, Occupy Wall Street. These are the sort of ch the children of the Great Recession. And I think their political ideology is formed in that context. And it's going to be here for a long time, at least on the Democratic side. In general, I found the primaries fascinating beyond all belief because not on the Republican side, I was amazed that Trump was able to win the nomination and basically dispatches his more traditional type Republican candidates one after the other simply by insulting them and by diminishing them rhetorically and by offering very sort of vague policies about returning America to its greatness. And, you know, maybe the immigration issue was the, the key there. I was fascinated by it. Once the two parties made their nominations official, it's become less fascinating mm. to me and more horrifying, mm. I guess. But I, I am interested in what, what happens from here in both accounts. I assume Clinton will win, and I'm interested in what kind of president she is relative to her husband. I, it's a much different context, so I assume it'll be a different type of presidency. I'm also interested in what happens to the Republican Party. The elite will try to gain it back from Trump and his supporters, but are they going to allow that to happen? I'm, it's all very fascinating to me. You mentioned you've been a supporter of Sanders for a few decades, so I'm inclined to ask a bit about you then. So, so where did you grow up and, and go to school? I grew up in Denver. Both of my parents were public school teachers and were big time believers in the power of unions in terms of making a life for people, especially public sector workers. And that's sort of my starting point. So I've always been sort of politically aware to that extent when I, I, I did my undergrad degree at the University of New Mexico. And then after that, after a few years trying to figure out what to do or how to be an adult, I became a public school teacher myself. And that really sort of politicized me, you might say radicalized me, uh, more than anything else in my life because I taught at a school with a lot of uh, minority and poor children, and it just all seemed so unjust. And my young idealistic self tried to solve those issues, and I ran up against a brick wall. Um, and it was, it, it was very formative for me. Um, after that, I went to graduate school, and so since then, I've been trying to figure out this crazy country we call America. And, you know, I'm maybe making some progress in trying to figure that out, but I'm nowhere near having it all figured out. Where were you during the culture wars in the 80s? And, and were, were you aware of those? Were you aware of the, the new ideas sort of moving around, or rather the ideas from the 60s that were moving around in the culture at the time? And did you pay attention? Sort of, you know, what was so interesting about researching this book is that you know, I was born in 1972. I really came of age and grew up in the 1980s. And so a lot of the things that I wrote about, when I think back on it, I remember glimpses of it here and there, but I wouldn't say it was formative for me then. There were certain things that were, like, for example, I was an avid listener of rap in the 1980s, including some of the ones who came uh, some of the rap groups who came under censorship scrutiny such as two live crew and i remember when the tipper stickers were 
began to be placed on CDs. And I remember thinking that it was cool and that I wanted to own every, every CD or record at maybe at that time that had a tipper sticker on them and that my brother and I were often trying to hide these things from my mom. And so this is, this is sort of a personal anecdote that was a part of the larger culture wars. I very much remember when I was maybe 18, I think I remember some of the sort of instances of culture wars that made their way to the forefront, such as the Anita Hill hearings and those types of things. But I, I guess I, I wasn't a participant and I didn't pay nearly as much attention as my older self wished I would have. After you become more interested in not just history, but you started doing work on, on intellectual history, you were the founding president of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History, and you've been an active uh, member and contributor to its its blog, which is award-winning. So can you talk a bit about that organization? Why did you why did you help found it, and why have you been so committed to to producing blog posts, which are essentially not just for historians, but for readers interested in history generally? It's actually been one of the more rewarding things of my career. I was a brand new assistant professor here at Illinois State University in 2007, and I was trying to recreate something that I loved about graduate school, and that was that I had a cohort of people who I could get together with and talk about books and ideas. When I was in graduate school, I went to the George Washington University in D.C., and I had formed a reading group, and we read all kinds of things and just got together at coffee shops and talked about it. I wanted that, but it was, you know, when you get, when you get a job and you're in an academic department with people just that are, who are all very busy and interested in different things, it's really hard to recreate that unless you're in a, living in a place like Berkeley or New York City. And so Tim Lacey, who is now my good friend, sent out this missive on an H net listserv, a humanities network listserv called H Ideas, and asked if anyone was interested in sort of forming some sort of group online dedicated to the study of intellectual history in the United States. And so I jumped at that chance, as did about six or seven other people. And so in 2000, January 2007, we started a blog, the U.S. Intellectual History blog, and we just sort of picked up steam. We really liked what we were doing. We wanted to actually make it something concrete in the physical face-to-face -face world. So we started a conference in 2007, the first one held at Grand Valley State University. We just sort of attached on to the, um, I think, the Great Lakes History Conference, which mm -hmm. is an annual event mm -hmm. there. And we loved it so much. There were about 30 or 40 people who attended that we decided we had to keep it going. And so in the first couple of years after that, we held the conference at the City University of New York Graduate Center, the CUNY Graduate Center, and things just exploded from there. And I guess we realized that there was a need for this, a desire for this. Intellectual history has long been sort of at the center of the discipline, at least going back to the early 20th century. But in the 1960s and 70s, you see a social and cultural turn in the discipline. And this was sort of attached to the movements of the 60s when many scholars wanted to quit studying elite people, especially white men in power or white men in prominent positions, such as John Dewey, for example, and instead wanted to study sort of average people, especially, uh, say, slaves or working class or women, minorities. And you see a shift away from intellectual history, and intellectual history is seen as something elitist. But by the time my generation of scholars is coming up, we there are many of us who think that, you know, that's not necessarily right, that we still need intellectual history, a much broader version of it. And there, of course, were intellectual history historians, very prominent ones, practicing all along, the David Hollingers and Jim Kloppenbergs and Dorothy Rosses of the world. But we just felt like we needed a sort of cohort and we needed something organized to get together every year. And so the conference and then the society just became our way to get together every year and talk about these things in person. Um, and we love it. And the blog itself has just been our way to continue doing it even when we can't be in person. And we have a large readership, I would say, for an academic blog, but it's become a sort of community and it's really an enjoyable aspect of 
my academic life. I had the chance to go to the, the meeting last year in D.C., uh, which was packed. And I remember a few panels that were just they, they just, they felt like sort of intellectual happenings or events on their own. I remember, I remember Corey Robbins' talk. I remember Andrew Sullivan sort of coming up, showing up for that, and a, and a minor debate ensuing. I also remember there was a panel that, uh, that you introduced and hosted, I think, or perhaps it was Natalia uh, Petrozella, on Little Magazines. And there was a sort of a debate between, uh, I think it was Bhaskar Sankara at Jacobin, as well as Dan McCarthy at the American Conservative, Rachel Rosenfeld from the New Inquiry, and then I think it was David Marcus uh, at Dissent. And I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, th- this is such this is such a young society in terms of it, it was founded in the mid 2000s. It seemed like a lot of people were interested in the ideas that were moving around. What do you attribute to the popularity, the growing popularity of this organization? Is it is it is it just that intellectual history is on the rise? That's a good question that we all sort of ask ourselves. I think. In part, it's intellectual histories on the rise. For example, last year, I went to this great conference that was about rethinking the New Deal. It was held at the University of California in Santa Barbara, sort of hosted by the great labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein. And we were all there to sort of discuss this groundbreaking, formative book from the 80s called The Rise and Fall of the New Deal, which was edited by Gary Gersel and Steve Frazier. And all of the scholars who were maybe... 45 and older for the most part, you would have considered political, social, labor historians. And I'm generalizing here, but, and then it seemed like many of the younger scholars, especially the assistant professors, the graduate students would have considered themselves intellectual historians. And many of them, in fact, often attend our conference. And I don't know exactly how to explain that, except that it's become interesting and cool once again to focus on ideas. And that's really exciting to me because that's what I like to focus on. Our conference itself is often an event because when we host it in places like New York and Washington and we can get a who's who of intellectuals there, and, and we've intentionally tried to stoke that because I guess many of us are sort of if we're going to be nostalgic, like like the Make America Great people, we're sort of nostalgic for the time when partisan review, like these people felt like the future of the world was at stake in every last article they wrote. That just seems very exciting. I, I realize it's a nostalgic view of intellectual life, but it seems very exciting. And that's something we, in our little way, in our small little way, are trying to recreate. Well, Andrew, I know I got to let you go here. So thanks very much for talking with me and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. That was our interview with Andrew Hartman, author of A War for the Soul of America. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.